You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. My name is Adam. I am the lead teaching pastor here at Mercy's Door, and it is a joy to gather with you guys here in the park I want to give you guys permission up front to do what you need to do uh, to work around the heat and to work around the lack of child support this morning. If you need to let the wiggles out in the back, really whatever you need to do, uh, super welcome. I'm just glad that we're together and, uh, and, and glorifying Jesus together in the park this morning. We are continuing our sermon series through this book of John. We don't have slide supports or anything this morning, and so would love for you guys to take the time you need to pull it up on your phone, bring out your Bibles. Uh, whatever you need to do. We are in chapter 11, verse 38, on down through the end of the chapter this morning. And if you've been with Mercy's Door, and if you've not, hopefully the summary will suffice. You'll know that we got to where we are this morning. We're midway through an account where Jesus raises a dead man to new life. His name is Lazarus. And last week, word came to him through this man's sisters, Mary and Martha. They sent to Jesus to the place where he was and let him know that the one that he loves is ill. The one that you love is ill, Lord, they say to him. So these words come to him, and he says to his disciples, oh, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's that the Son of God may be glorified. And then he waits two more days in the place that he is before making his way back to Bethany, the city where Lazarus, his friend, was from. When he arrives there, he's greeted by Lazarus' sister, Martha, who runs out and meets him on the way. And she cries before him and weeps with him, says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, oh, your brother will rise again. And Martha has no category for this. And so she's like, well, yes, I know that he will be resurrected on the last day, thinking he's referring to the end of all things, but has no really real belief in that moment that Jesus is going to rise her brother from the dead today as I'm about to preach this morning. And he says, oh, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody who dies, who believes in me, though he die, will live. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha gives this amazing profession of faith where she says, I do believe, Lord, that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And then she goes and she tells her sister Mary that Jesus has arrived and is asking for her. And Mary comes with a great crowd of Jews surrounding her and kind of says the same thing to him. If you'd been here, Jesus, then my brother would not have died. And, Lazar- and Jesus kind of feels this mix of emotions as he sees the tears, the sincere tears of Mary and Martha calling on him and needing him and depending on him and the tears of her fellow mourners, the Jews who had come to mourn for a week around her as, as was customary in the time. And so she, he sees the intermixing of these tears between the Jews and those who truly loved Lazarus and loved the Lord. And it says that within him, this agitation brews up. And this comment is spoken at the end of the passage where it says, where, where they essentially say, is not he who was able to open the eyes of the blind? Is he not able also to save this man? And you can see that there's not real sincerity in coming to Jesus by all on the part of all in the crowd. So that takes us to, kind of catches us up to where we are this morning. And I want you guys to know that last week we did great labor to kind of work through a whole bunch of bad theology when it comes to sickness, when it comes to death, when it comes to who Jesus is in these hard moments. 
we talked about these ideas that we have that Jesus somehow surrenders his lordship, that he somehow surrenders his goodness, that he somehow stops knowing, that he, that he becomes unaware, that he becomes distant or cold in our moment of suffering, that somehow something must be deficient on Christ's part or on my part for there to be suffering in my life, that maybe I've brought this on me that this is the Lord's displeasure with me, that this is the Lord's absence from me, and that he's waiting on me to clean myself up, to pick myself up, to do something in order to bring his presence and his favor back upon my life, or else maybe there's something deficient on his part, that maybe he sees, but he doesn't care, that maybe he sees and he cares, but he isn't able, that maybe he's able and he cares, but he doesn't see, that there's something deficient on his part, and and there's nothing that I can do about that. And there's this great despair that comes over us in our hour of suffering on the part of all kinds of bad doctrine when it comes to pain, suffering, and death. And so we did a lot of work last week to work through those things. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus bring solution to all of this tension that we kind of walked through last week. In my notes, I wrote down four points, and I'll have you guys just listen for them on the front end. What I want you guys to hear as we walk through this this morning is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are always in hearing of each other's voice. That the Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the triune Godhead, they're always in hearing of one another's voice. The Father always hears the Son. The Son always hears the Father. And likewise, the Spirit always hears the Son and the Father. Constant, open communication between the three figures of the triune God. Point number two is that the dead obey the voice of the Lord. That the dead obey the voice of the Lord. Point number three is that the reprobate try to silence the voice of the Lord, but they cannot. That the dead try to silence the voice of the Lord, but they cannot. In fact, we'll see in our passage this morning that even his accusers and deniers prophesy about him. And then lastly, my point just says Jesus wins. Jesus wins. You guys can write that down. But really what I mean to say here is that Jesus makes really dead things really alive. That Jesus makes really dead things really alive. Let's make our way through it together. I'm going to try to move quickly so that we can get to uh, drinks and and, uh, a picnic before 90 degrees. But no promises. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I want to stop here, guys. This is Martha. Again, if you weren't with us last week, try to put yourself in Martha's shoes. If you were like here last week, maybe that'll be a little bit faster for you. But listen, Martha had just given that beautiful profession of faith. Jesus had just spoken over her that her brother would rise again. And she had given this profession of faith. Yes, I, I do believe, I do believe that all who put their faith in you will never perish. I believe it. And that all those who have died, like you've just said, will yet have life. I believe it, Lord. I believe it that you are the Son of God who has come into the world. I believe it. I believe it. And here in this moment where Jesus shows up to the tomb and he says, roll that stone away. Let's look at Martha's response. Take away the stone, he says, and Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And in my, in my notes, 
all it said was, Lazarus was dead, dead. He was dead, dead. Four days dead. Starting to stink, dead. Body decomposing, dead. Lazarus was dead. Dead. Like really dead. So dead that coming to the, coming to the, the tomb here, guys, when, when, when Mary steps up and she runs out of her home weeping when she hears that Jesus has arrived, all those around her make the natural assumption there was a seven-day mourning period when somebody would die in Jewish culture. And so the mourners would surround the primary mourner and they would follow her wherever she would go in her grief. And you would move back and forth between the home and the burial site, the home and the burial site. So when they see her get up, people follow her because the natural assumption is you're going to the tomb. But you're not going to the tomb to open it, not after four days. You're going to the tomb to grieve there. That was their assumption. And so they come to that door and everything testifies. You keep that thing shut because that body is four days dead. And you grieve here because that body is four days dead. Lazarus is gone. He's gone. And when Jesus says, roll that thing away, what Martha is fully expecting to encounter in that moment is the stench of her brother. The stench of her brother is what she's expecting here. She says, Lord, we can't roll that stone away. He's been gone four days. And guys, I just, I need you to hear that, right? Because there are things in your life that have been dead and really dead. And I'm talking about your sin here. And I am talking about those hopes and those dreams that you have had that have just been crushed. Right? I'm talking about people, broken relationships. There are dead things all around you. We're going to talk about the chief dead thing here in this message. But I want you to know that there are things where we wouldn't even dare to hope on Jesus when he says, open that thing up, let it breathe. Let's get some air in there because I want to do something. I want to take something dead and bring it to life. And we'd rather keep the stone shut because if you don't show up, Jesus, what I'm going to be confronted with is the stench of death. I'd rather keep it hidden behind that stone than take the risk of, of opening that thing up to you, Jesus, because if you don't show up, goodness, I don't know that I could face that. Martha was very well within her right mind to worry about rolling that stone away. This was the beloved sister of the deceased in the middle of the height of her mourning. And she desperately needed Jesus. She sent word to him before she thought it was too late. But now we've moved to an entirely different phase of grief where surely it's too far gone. Surely it's too late. So when Jesus says, roll the stone away, Martha objects. Martha objects. Now, I, it's customary in my home at bedtime, uh, when I'm putting my kids down, that we spend time in devotion to the Lord. And what we do is we, uh, we, we uh, tell each other our favorite stories about Jesus. Sometimes it's with the Bible open, and sometimes it's more like oral tradition, where we'll just say to my littlest, I'll say, hey, tell me one of your favorite stories about Jesus, and I'll just let him speak true things about Jesus over me in his own words and how he recalls the story. And it, it's a lovely time. And I was doing that one night when my youngest, Gus, was four years old, and I'm telling him this story, the story of Lazarus and the time that Jesus brought his friend back from the dead. And he's listening intently and he's eating this up. This is like the first time that he's really heard this story with any comprehension. And when it gets done, he says to me very astutely, Dad, after Jesus la raised Lazarus from the dead, did he ever die again? Good question. In fact, Gus, he did. 
He sure did die again. And that is why, Gus, it is so incredible that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and then took it up again. He said that by faith, if we join him in the likeness of his death, that we too can be joined with him in the likeness of his resurrection and live forever, that we won't die two deaths, that we will live one life always before the face of our God. And thinking that I have just had this incredible theological moment with my four-year-old, he's still fixated on his question about Lazarus. And he says to me, okay, so... Jesus gives us all one extra life, and then it's game over. <laughs> and then, of course, three years later, just a couple of weeks ago, you guys, if you were with us when we did our 14 baptisms, saw my now seven-year-old Gus go into the waters of baptism, joining Christ in the likeness of his death and rising again in the likeness of his resurrection, seeing with open eyes that Jesus does give new life to us, to us who are spiritually dead. And this is ultimately where I want to make our way this morning as we look at the physical resurrection of Lazarus. Let's keep with our story. And so Martha objects. She says, there's going to be an odor for he's been dead four days. And so this is like a sub point here, but I want you guys to think about what it was like for Lazarus to be risen in this situation. Okay, like, like we're going to get some details as we work our way through this, but come on. At the first resurrection, to keep with my four-year-old's question, at his first resurrection, he was raised to a linen wrap around his face. He was raised to bound hands. He was raised to wraps around his feet. He was raised to the stench of his own decomposing body. He, that, that's, what, that's what Lazarus was raised to at the first resurrection. And for some of us, that's the resurrection we prefer. For some of us guys, we would, we would count it all joy, like forget eternity, just Lord, enter into my temporary and momentary affliction and fix what is broken here on this side of eternity that I might just die again. That we might walk a little bit more comfortably in a sick and dying world with no regard whatsoever for eternal matters and for total permanent restoration. I wonder how welcome the sight of Lazarus was when he reopened them into bodily life. Well, let's see. Jesus said to him, or Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Several years ago at Mercy's Door, we preached through the book of Exodus. And you might recall, if, if you know the book of Exodus or if you were with us, that there's a moment in an interaction between Moses and God where Moses begs the Lord, let me see your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord in his kindness hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. And he says, I will let my goodness pass before you. And he declares his name over him as he passes by him while he's hidden in the cleft. But he will not let Moses look upon his face because Moses would die if he were to look upon the fullness of the glory of his God. And you see, this is the nature of sin my friends, this is the nature of sin, that we were created for the glory of our king. We were made to magnify his glory. We were made to reflect his goodness and his majesty and his wonder back to him. We were made for a purpose, and the purpose of humanity is to reflect the glory of God as his image bearers in this life. We are to bask in the warmth of his glory. We are to find our life in the presence of his glory. We are to find our purpose in the presence of his glory and the great loss of sin among all the losses is that we are no longer able in our sinful estate to look upon the glory of our creator, the very thing that we were made for, 
such that even Moses, the chosen man of God in those ancient days, would say, Lord, show me your glory. And he'd say, hide over here and I'll show you my backside. But here, Jesus says something entirely different, doesn't he? Not to his prophet Moses, but to his beloved friend Martha. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. The very thing that deep in your soul is the thing that you cry out for louder than anything in this life, church, is to just see the glory of your God. That the veil would be lifted, that you would behold him in all of his fullness, all of his goodness, all of his glory. This is what you were made for. And Jesus says, the path to that is to believe in me. And Martha, you've said you believed in me, so watch this. So watch this. And we're going to see an incredible miracle take place here in a second. But Jesus has moved past the miracle as he makes this declaration. The miracle certainly served to signify and to certify who he was and who he was pointing to. But Jesus has his eyes fixed clearly on the glory of his Father here, on the glory of the Son, on the glory of the Spirit. He says this, So did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away that stone, verse 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And so Jesus prays in front of the crowds. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays this prayer of thanksgiving to his father. He says, thank you that you have heard me. And when he says that, he's articulating the initiator of what's about to happen. The initiator in this one is the son. Jesus desires to raise Lazarus. Now he knows when he got the news that God the Father was up to something when he put this sickness upon Lazarus. He said, ah, this does not lead to death. This is that, those, that they would believe that I am the son and that he sent me. But Jesus says to the father, let me raise him. And the father, of course, always hearing the son, says, go ahead and here we go. And he thanks him he's heard me but then he makes this public declaration within his prayer you ever hear a pastor do that sometimes like where they're like to start teaching while they're praying they start like saying true stuff about god to god while they're praying or they start saying stuff to the hearers of their public prayer while they're praying there's room for it jesus is doing it here and he's saying i've said this to you thank you that you've heard me not because you ever don't hear me but for these folks who are standing around that they may believe that it's you who sent me You see, Jesus knew that if I say in front of the dead world, thank you, Father, for hearing me, that someone in that crowd would hear, so sometimes he doesn't, huh? That someone in that crowd would hear, so sometimes the Father hears you and sometimes he doesn't, that you can only do miracles when your Father's listening, but when he's not listening, you can't. Jesus says, no, 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 Father, let me clarify. I know that you have always heard me, but I say this on account of them, that they may believe that it is you who have sent me. You see, the high claim of Jesus that continually gets him within an inch of his life, but he won't allow it because he's Lord, is that he is one with the Father, that he and the Father are one, that they experience total unity. And at Christ's baptism, in the beginning of his public ministry, the Father allowed the crowd around him to see this amazing moment where the Holy Spirit in physical form and in in visual form to Christ would descend upon him and from there would carry him into the wilderness and carry him every day of his public ministry as he walked in this life in human form. 
And so in that moment when Jesus raises his eyes to the heavens and he speaks as if he's standing right next to the ear of the Father, it is in the power of the Spirit that he is doing that, this conduit where all three in one are just in perfect, total access relationship with one another. And I bring this up this morning, church, because when Jesus models prayer for us every time, not just when he teaches us the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, every time he prays, He's teaching us something because it's him who said to us that it is better that he should go, that the spirit should come, that the helper should come. And if you belong to Christ's church, what makes you a Christian above all else is that you have been brought from death to life by the indwelling Holy Spirit within you, which means when you pray, when you speak, you have oneness with the Father, with the ear of the Father, as the Holy Spirit delivers the prayers to his right hand. This is no small truth. This is a great truth. In fact, Paul goes one further and he says, even when you don't know what to pray for as you ought, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you on your behalf, always praying the perfect prayer to the ear of the Father on your behalf. You who have been made one with the Holy Spirit experience oneness with the Father and the Son, and you can commune with him directly in prayer. And that's what Jesus does here as he thanks him. And he says he does this that we might believe that it is he who sent him, Then verse 43, when he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let go. And so again, we we circle back around to the strange nature with which Lazarus came out. His ankles are bound. It's in order that his body might have been more easily carried to the tomb. His hands bound, a shroud across his face. And so with some trouble, apparently, he, but he came out, but he did come out. I mean, I, like, I don't know if you want to like, go so far as to picture it with me, but it gets pretty weird for me in my imagination what this probably looked like. And as this crowd of people is looking at Lazarus coming out, I don't think it was probably this immediate declaration of praise and wonder. I think it was probably terrifying. Like, I don't know if Jesus dealt with the odor or not, but the tomb opened up and probably the odor came out and then comes this mummy guy wrapped up as he hops his way out of the, out of the tomb, right? Because he's still bound. Jesus hasn't given the command to unbind him yet. And yet, for all the things holding him back, the dead obeyed the voice of the Lord. The dead obeyed the voice of the Lord. In church, this is a major point for me this morning. It's a major point in our text, and you've got to take it to the bank that the dead obey the voice of your Lord. You see, not even death releases us from the Lordship of Christ. Because in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and He was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If all things were made through Him and for Him, then, and Abraham Kuyper says it like this, that there is not one square inch over all creation over which Lord Jesus does not declare mine, then not even death can wriggle you free from his lordship even the dead respond to his voice like it's nothing because he looked at the void and said let there be and it was and so if nothing listens to him 
and become something, then something listens to him too, even when that something is dead. And some of y'all need to hear it this morning, not just in pertains to life, as it pertains to life and death of people, but the life and death of all things. There are things that you are counting as dead, dead, that you are saying, this is now outside the reach of the lordship of my king. And so we don't talk to him by the Spirit to see that he might actually have every intention to glorify the Son since that's what he's been about from beginning to end through bringing dead things to life in church. If you belong to him, then you are proof of it. Like you and I, we're spiritually dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. It is far more difficult to take a man from the pits of hell and to put him into the high court of the king God in heaven than it is to say to a tomb, Lazarus, come out. Jesus' earthly ministry pales in comparison to what he is doing day by day through the power of the Spirit in dead sinners all across the world, including in Mascuda and Scott Air Force Base. You are proof that he brings dead things to life because you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. But he has made you alive again together with him if you are found in Christ. So take heart. And I want you to think about this morning, the one who you are believing is too far gone. Because if the church filled with new life, who had hearts of stone, made hearts of flesh, spiritually dead, now filled with the Holy Spirit of God, cannot look upon dead things and say, oh man, I wonder what God's going to do. Then we are to be pitied. The proof that no one else around you is too far gone is that you weren't too far gone. And if you walk into this space as, in your own mind, anyone other than the worst among us, You've lost sight of all that which Christ has ransomed you from and is continuing to make intercession for you for as you continue to fumble against the flesh on your way to your eternal dwelling place at the table of the king. And so here Jesus has shown his lordship over the dead. Lazarus has come forward. He says to the church, unbind them. He says to to his disciples, those around him, unbind him and let him go. I find that interesting, and I'm not going to take it too far because I'd have to take it too far, but I want you to know I love when Jesus chooses to allow his people to participate in his ministry. He could have brought them out unbound, but instead he just brought them out, and he let everyone get a good look at how he went in. And then he invited them to go ahead and go in and take off those bindings. You see, this was a living man dressed like a dead man. And he said to those around, let's make the uniform match the right state state here, right? Take off those bindings. It doesn't make sense anymore. And church, that's the invitation that he makes for us day by day in our new life that we wouldn't return to our death wrappings, return to the stench and the filth of our sin and put them back on to just wear the flesh as if it still fits. It doesn't anymore. And it's the church around you who is going to help you to to shed the flesh and to stay and remain with Christ in 
the Spirit. Let's move on. There's a whole plot here now that, that comes forth, right? This is this third point that I was making, that Jesus claims lordship even over the dead, that, his, that the dead even respond to his voice, but that those who are reprobate, those who are not born again, those who are dead in their sin, they can't receive it. They won't receive it. They will do all that they can. We did all that we could until we were given new life to silence him. And this is what we see here. None of this is enough. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who'd come with Mary, who had seen what he did, believed in him. Amen. And some of them went, but some of them, this other group, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, what are we going to do? This man performed so many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. Okay, so they start this council and they're like, in response to Jesus bringing dead people alive, let's shut this guy down. And if this seems bizarre to you, you must remember the place in which you once walked. It's not that bizarre. Your eyes have always seen the Lord testifying to his goodness, to his mercy, to his majesty, to his glory. Everything around you shouts his glory and everything in you until the moment that you were given eyes to see did everything that it could to blind yourself to it and to invite others to follow you into death and blindness. This is the nature of sin. It's utterly corruptible. And so they gather this council and they start to plot. How do we shut this guy down? And Caiaphas speaks, he's the high priest that year, and he says in verse 49, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so he speaks the words out loud. We gotta kill him. And he does it under these false pretenses that listen, with everything that he's doing, he's disrupting the status quo. And if we disrupt the status quo, it's going to attract the attention of the Romans. If it attracts the attention of the Romans, they're going to come in. They might tear down the temple. They might remove from us our sovereignty as a nation. They might, you know, they, they might squash us out. They remember the Babylonian exile well. They're, and for them, it's very important that they maintain access to the temple, that worship can continue to proceed forth in sacrifices, that they remain in the land that they would be a people who they can say, the favor of our God is on us because we continue to occupy the land that he gave for us. So under these pretenses, saying what Jesus is doing is going to cost us our land, it's going to cost us access to the temple, it's going to bring the disfavor of the Romans upon us, and so for the sake of our relationship with God, let's kill him. It's hypocrisy, and it always draws close to our sin. Hypocrisy is always walking close to our sin. And what's great about it is our Lord does not surrender his lordship even for the reprobate. Here even Caiaphas calling for the death of the Messiah is fulfilling the word of God. It says verse 50 or 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. 
And so the sinful intentions of the priest Caiaphas to shut down and kill the Messiah on the false claim that it was in order that they might keep the favor of God and keep out the disfavor of the Romans. Instead, the Lord used and oriented it as prophecy that he would speak truth, that one would die for all, and not for the nation of Israel only, but for all people scattered across the earth. And if this doesn't show us the high sovereignty of our glorious Lord, that he is not only speaking to the dead and they obey, the physically dead and they obey, and speaking to the spiritually dead and in, 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 in a moment, even though everything in them is motivated by sin, ends up being used as prophecy to bring about the salvation of the world, then we must see our Lord is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all. But from this day forward, as they made their plans to put him to death, verse 54, he no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to this feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. That they might arrest him. We wrote this sermon series through the book of John in three segments. We opened it up with the signs of the Savior. That's what we've been preaching for the last forever. And then here we see Jesus stop his period of public miracles. And he withdraws finally to a private ministry with his inner circle, with his disciples. And this section of the scriptures we're calling the teaching of the teachings of a good shepherd. Whole new focal point in the life of Jesus. And even though we're going to celebrate it, and even though we're grateful that the disciples documented all that happened in this inner circle ministry that Jesus is now moving himself into, we also do well to weep that the supposed people of God are the ones who drove Jesus into this period of his public ministry. That necessarily, as the day drew near, by the hand of the sovereign Lord, that he could no longer walk freely about among the Jews, the nation of Israel, the people of God. Because if they had their way, they would have put him down before his hour had come. Let it never be said of mercy's door or of the ransomed church of Christ that we would be a place where the Lord doesn't dwell, where he's off gathering with those who are in his, his inner circle because for us, we don't really want Jesus. We spit out the Jesus who is Lord of the dead. We spit out the Jesus who is Lord of, of the spiritually dead, who requires things of us, who, 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 when he looks at you, sees your sin, and holds you accountable for it, before it, before a holy God, takes an account for it, lays down his life for it, praise God, and requires you to, ent to join with him to enter into that death in order to have your new life. Circling back to point number one, guys, joining Martha for a moment just as a word of warning to the church that if we want the stone to remain closed, if we want the dead things, the sin in us, the stench of our filth, to be closed off from the eyes of Jesus. We don't want him to see it. We don't want him to speak to it. We don't want him to take dead things and bring them to life because that means I have to acknowledge that it's dead. It means I've got to smell it. 
It means I've got to deal with that. It's dangerous, folks. Because even the most religious among them, leaving Martha and Mary out of it for a minute, even the most religious, they wanted the favor of God, but they didn't want the lordship of Christ in order to get it. And the favor of God is for the Christ. And his favor with you goes as far as the Lord Christ has taken up residence in you. There are no half measures. There is no one here who has met God halfway. He's not more satisfied with you than another on the basis of your own works, guys. You're dead or you're alive. So my invitation to you this morning, Mercy's Door, in closing, is to answer this for yourself. And when you're done, answer quickly. Don't, I don't want to sow any seeds of doubt in you if you belong to him. But maybe you don't. Maybe Jesus loves you because you're great. Right? Maybe Jesus loves you because you obey. Be sure on your part that your right standing with God is on account of the work of another, that Christ took a dead thing and made him alive. But once you're sure, move your spirit off of you and onto another, the one that you believe is too far gone, the one you've stopped sharing the gospel with. And ask the Lord to give you courage to join him in his life-giving work to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth that humanity might be reconciled to him and do what we were made to do, to enjoy and delight in his glory and to reflect his glory back to him. Let's pray these things now.